What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Blackball is a new book by Teresa Runstetler that chronicles the tumultuous era of the NBA in the 1970s. Amid ongoing resistance to racial desegregation, a new generation of black players entered the league, including Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Spencer Haywood. Runstetler shows how these players transformed the game and laid the foundation for the global popularity and profitability of the modern NBA. Available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook from Bold Type Books. Visit www.boldtypebooks.org for more information. Welcome to the Edge of Sports Podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. This week we have the. El siempre hay una primera vez deal. Hay momentos que no se olvidan, como la primera vez que llevaste a tus amigos al drive-thru de McDonald's y hasta pagaste toda la cuenta. Hay un deal para cada primera vez en McDonald's. Ahora puedes llevarte un crispy chicken sandwich, spicy crispy chicken sandwich o chicken McNuggets de 10 piezas, dos por solo 6 dólares. Precios y participación pueden variar. Artículo individual a precio regular. No se puede combinar con ninguna otra oferta o combo meal. When your business travel is out of balance, you feel it. At National Car Rental, you're in control. Skip the counter, choose any car in the aisle, and manage your rental right from the app. So you can balance your presentation with relaxation. And mix work with leisure. Or leisure with work. Find the perfect balance with National Car Rental. Go national. Go like a pro. Subject to availability and other restrictions requires enrollment in the complimentary Emerald Club. The author of a book that I'm just so into. It's an illustrated history of the women's game. It's called Hoop Muses, an insider's account to pop culture and the women's game. It's by Kate Fagan. The book is illustrated by Sophia Chang and curated by the legendary hoopster Simone Augustus. And we're going to find out what that means, that it was curated. As for our guest... That would be Kate Fagan, the aforementioned one. You may also know Kate from her former time at ESPN or her work today with Metal Art Media. She's a number one New York Times uh, bestselling author, and we're thrilled to have her on the show. Here's Kate Fagan. What you mean by Hoop Muses? Yes. So the name Hoop Muses, actually, it was Simone Augustus who came up with that name. We had had this working title when we were taking it around to publishers of Love and Basketball, but we knew that almost certainly that wasn't going to be the actual title of the book because people would just relate it to 
the movie Love and Basketball. And when we were brainstorming, Simone had the idea of kind of going back to mythology, Greek history. And she said, well, what about something like a muse? And I don't know the actual definition, but essentially the definition of a muse is a woman who inspires creativity. And it felt like that was a really appropriate use of the word, maybe a creative use of the word when, when we landed on hoop muses, because you know, throughout the history of women's basketball in particular, there had to be an element of creativity with mm-hmm. the way women played it and the decades and the way society was when they played it. So that's how we landed on hoop muses, even mm-hmm. though I was against it because I think it's very hard to enunciate. Yes, yes. <laughs> Understood. But, but it works people, on the page. Exactly. It works when you read it. And so that was the key. And I think and now I think it's just the absolute perfect title for the book. Mm. What does it mean that it was curated by Simone Augustus, by the great Simone Augustus? <sighs> Simone Augustus. So the best way to explain this is it's not like Simone was like doing all this research and being like, let's include so-and-so. But I felt like if I if I wanted this book to truly be an insider's guide and to truly give any age range people who were reading it, the feel that they were being taken inside moments and given like a higher level of, of insiderness. I needed Simone because like, here's a clear example. In the back of the book, we have a reimagining of the WNBA jam, the iconic nineties video game. And we, we created a bunch of illustrations and dynamic duos. And then I created the power meters for each player, defense, all of that. You know, it's maybe something a throwaway that we have in the back of the book, but I to be able to go to Simone and say, you were defended by Sue Bird. Do you think her ranking is appropriate? So it's like that level of kind of detail was what Simone was able to bring to the book, as well as just any number of chapters. I can believe I know the five best international players of all time or underrated players or key moments, but she knows what players actually talk about and who they actually think are worthy of, of, of being held up. Like, you know, Simone would, would consistently be like, Deanna Nolan's the most underrated player of all time. And so we, we make sure that we kind of like inject all of that stuff into the book. Mm. Yeah. I'm, I'm torn between not wanting to give away too much in the book, but <laughs> uh, I have to ask you uh, what, did you learn? I mean, you're, you're obviously very conversant in hoops and women's hoops and the history of hoops, but there's a level of research to the book also that I found myself really learning a great deal. And I was curious if there was anything that you stumbled upon in your research that was new to you. I mean, I would say, I can't even tell you how many voice memos I sent to my mom during the course of researching this book, because I thought because I'd worked at ESPNW and I'd worked on the 40th anniversary of title nine. And so I was like, Oh yeah, the history, like I can tell you who Cheryl Miller is. I can tell you who Nancy Lieberman is. I thought I understood the history of the game, but I was basically missing everything from send a Berenson Naismith days in 1892 to basically Nancy Lieberman. You know, so that's a huge, that is a lot of time when women were playing basketball that I had no concept of. Didn't, had never heard of the first intercollegiate game played in 1896, which is its own fascinating story. Had never heard of Fort Shaw, the Native American team 
that, that performed at the state fair. I didn't understand the barnstorming aspect of the game. I didn't understand the, the pre, like the, we know AAU to be one thing now, but the AAU days of like the forties and fifties and the way they were connected to businesses or to local colleges, it's very different than the NCAA model. So, I mean, honestly, anything between 1892 and like 1968, like Lucia Harris era, no concept of all of it was sort of revelatory to me. What is it? that you love about the women's game that's distinct from the men's game? I mean, I know you're a huge hoops fan, all hoops, uh, but th there's this really affecting part of the book, the halftime part, where you speak about the way women's hoops is denigrated. And it seemed like through that, you were also explaining what you find beautiful about it that is distinct. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. That's a good question because I don't think I've ever like really thought about that particular aspect of it. But I think my my re my gut reaction to it is that I love how I see women's basketball as being this beautiful thing that throughout its history has existed away from the exploitative capitalism that so much of men's sports has endured while simultaneously strangely fighting to be under that umbrella, right? There's this juxtaposition of seeing how the way we have structured our sports where, you know, the higher salaries mean success that I, I, so it's, it's like this weird place that women's sports exists where you're kind of the underdog that is trying to explain why you deserve to be a part of the system while also asking yourself the larger question of if we do make it into this, you know, this, this, this system where we feel like salaries get to a point where they, um, where they're not commensurate, but their lifestyle salaries, how can we also change what, women's basketball is compared to men's where it's not the same model, right? Like mm. I don't think success for women's basketball is the same as what it, I don't think if women's basketball reaches success, it should look the same as what men's basketball looks like, but mm. I lack the imagination to know how that should be different. So I think, I guess that, that because I've never really thought this through all the way, I think it's just this really rich area of cultural thought Mm. that you can kind of use women's basketball to, to get at a lot of different, just like you can a lot of sports. But for me, it's women's basketball to really understand culture in a different way. Yeah. You know, John Wooden said at the end of his life that it was his preference to the men's game. Yeah. So, you know, th there are things, you know, he was identifying as different in terms of mm -hmm. style, passing, cutting, play, that, and I, I just find that very interesting that the way the women's game has developed organically has its own thing while also being part of the basketball universe. Yeah. It's, it's, amazing. it's not the same game. It, yeah. You know, it's, it's not the same game. Although obviously the influences of what WNBA players love because you exist in America, they're going to look toward, you know, the Curry's and the LeBron's because of the way our world works right now, but it's not the same game. Mm. Well, what about how, is, how the women's game has changed? How has the WNBA changed both, not just in quality of play, but in image 
over the last quarter century? Okay, so this is so. Um, this is going to take a detour, but I promise it will zoom back around. I never watched the Showtime show The L Word when it first came out, right? So it's a show from like 2003 to 2008, yeah, 2009. Um, yeah, and I never watched it, but I have just a couple months ago decided to go back and watch it for the first time. And they're in season two. There's an episode where the cast of the L word, well, the characters in the show, want to go to a professional women's basketball game. And I'm expecting them to go to the Los Angeles Sparks game. And yet they have to, in the show, manufacture a fake team and go film with a fake team because it seems very clear that the WNBA had no interest in being a part of that episode of the L word. And I think that is justified because in the following season, there's this little aside that Jennifer Beals says when they're all hanging out where she's like, well, the problem with the WNBA, and again, this is 2007. The problem with the WNBA is that they run away from their key fan base and it's sad. And these are things that I think I wrote about like five years later and thought they were original thoughts. Mm. (laughs) But so I think that, you know, when I look at the WNBA, And a lot of people will be like, it's coming up on 27 years of existence. And I'm like, yes, that is true. And there's all kinds of icons and historical moments. But I don't think the WNBA really understood it or they didn't they weren't willing to embrace their core fan base until about eight to eight years ago. Mm. And so I, I think of it as like, yes, it's 27 years old, but it's almost like it it just recently built its core audience and can now grow from there. Because how do you, how do you grow when your core, when when you're refusing to acknowledge and really monetize your core audience? Mm. So I think that the W now, now that it understands who its core core audience is and can grow from there and, and then kind of build outward. And now is when I feel like, you know, once you've got that decade of like really, really building that core audience, like that's how I see the W, not like 27 years old. It's like 27 with an asterisk. Mm. That's that's really interesting. And uh, you did go all the way around. Have you yeah. seen have you seen the reboot of the L word? Yeah, I did. And that was what led me back to the original because oh, okay. I I watched the reboot just a couple months ago. And I was like, well, I got to go back and watch the original. I think when the original came out, I was, I still had so much internalized homophobia that I was like, I can't possibly be a gay person that watches the L word. I just can't do it. So I just now got around to it. Awesome. Um, (laughs) Yeah. You know, for as long as I've been uh, an adult writer, there has been Diana Taurasi there year Mm -hmm. in year out you know it is like a lebron thing where you've seen someone over the course of their entire career for the first time as an adult and that with that comes a certain connection but i thought it was very poignant in the book where you wrote about diana taurasi as being a missed opportunity uh for the sports world and i was hoping you could elaborate on that especially for my listeners who might, might not even necessarily know who diana taurasi is uh what was missed so, yeah, so Diana Tarazi is a former UConn star who probably, she was the number one pick and I want to say 04 sounds about, I mean, I may be a year off, but number one pick to the Phoenix Mercury in 04 and still playing, has won, you know, she, she and Sue Bird have won five Olympic gold medals and 
Mm. She's won um, titles with the Mercury, but most importantly to what you alluded to, and, and you know, when people, your listeners might know her because she was really connected to Kobe. She's kind of like nicknamed like the white mamba because her mentality was like Kobe's mentality, maybe even before Kobe or right alongside Kobe. And I think that when I say that I think she's a missed opportunity and I'm not the only one who thinks that it's because the W in women's basketball was really caught up in that early era of Diana's career. So like 2004, when she comes into the league until, like I said, 2015, where it's very much like we got to be the role models. You know, everybody has to get along. We have to be nice. We can't swear. We can't be like aggressively swaggery. And Diana was all of those things. Mm-hmm. And all of those things are what people love about sports. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the WNBA and even ESPN at turns, they sort of wanted to downplay it and turn the cameras away from her mm-hmm. when she was getting too Diana-y. And I think that that, like, that is a key sort of women's basketball icon who could have been somebody who transcended if we were willing, if ESPN and the W were willing to put her front and center at every turn in her true form, because you go back to early advertising materials and like, not just her, but you look at Sue and there's like this this over feminization that's happening of them instead of letting them bring their true sort of swaggery basketball selves to the game. And so I think it sort of, um, it kept the WNBA from finding some of those casual fans who would be converts through the conduit of Diana. I think it really limited that at a, at a key time when, I mean, Diana could have been talked about on first take every morning, you know, just Mm -hmm. like some women, female athletes who have transcended and like, you don't have to fight anymore. Right. You, and you know, the ones I'm talking about, like I, we can get a Serena Williams topic on any day. Right. Mm -hmm. And Diana should have been that for the W. Mm. You, I, I wanted to ask you the, what you're describing is in the book, I mean, dating back even 80 years before uh, the 2000s, that kind of uh, difficult struggle negotiation between looking as and projecting as heteronormatively as possible while also playing this rough and tumble game that obviously satisfies very different impulses than looking pretty for the boys. And this, and I wanted to ask you, have we, have we finally turned a corner away from that battle between the need to project heteronormativity normativity, uh, and just the, the, the joys of being a Diana Taurasi and just being able to swagger and play the sport? Have we turned the corner? I think we have, but I'm, I might be living in a bit of an echo chamber where the things I follow and pay attention to might reinforce that sense to me, right? Like my, my Instagram feed is filled with, mm. you know, together with an X and mm. just women's sports and, you know, so it is being reinforced to me now that, you know, the, the WNBA fashion walk-in, for example, from the bus to the locker room, you see all different kinds of, of style and fashion and um, embodiment of self that there's no, that didn't exist when I was playing college basketball. Like, mm-hmm. I can, I don't think there was anyone who didn't have a, a ponytail. It was a very rare occasion when someone didn't have a ponytail. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and I think that still exists to some degree, but some of that is just, you know, when you're young and you're in college, like you're still trying to figure out who you are. Um, but when you look in the WNBA, like you don't have the same like sort of 
homogeneity of like performance of gender. Certainly not. So I do, you know, it's not like I think it's completely fixed. I think I still think it's like, and you know, when you look at who's getting NIL money when it comes to female athletes, like, you know, it, it, do I think we're ever going to get over sex cells? Probably not, you know, but I do think we've turned a corner in terms of like we have deemed other things sexy. Mm. And the WNBA, as, as you highlight in the book, uh, really put a stamp on the broader cultural map uh, during the last decade of both Black Lives Matter protests and, gee, swinging the entire U.S. Senate through the Georgia election, that's all. Um, you, you must have some thoughts or theories about why it was the WNBA that actually was at the front end of this charge, why the WNBA inspired everybody from Colin Kaepernick to the NBA players in the bubble, because uh, so, that's not just about, you know, the, the obvious answer. Well, you know, being women, especially a core of black women dealing with double oppression, but it's also the way they were able to lead male athletes that I find really interesting. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's something to do with, and, I, and I'm curious if you kind of agree with this or what other thoughts you have, but there's some sort of sweet spot that the W has been in over the last few years. And, and I'm kind of reticent to leave the sweet spot, even though I want growth in contracts and, you know, every, everything coming to female athletes, but they were taking risks, but they're not taking you know, $10 million contract risks. Mm -hmm. They have this sweet spot of knowing they have uh, a group of women around them who are going to support these positions as well as a WNBA that has again understood its core audience. And, but also you're talking about contracts where you're like, you know, you're talking about a hundred thousand dollar contracts where you can take more risks in those moments. And I think that's a key piece of it along with everything else you said. And I think there's also like Simone said in the book that, in the early part of her career, she was told just, you know, pipe down and just be happy with a league essentially. And I think that the, the women really busted out of that. I think they felt a little harnessed by it. And so once they realized this league is not going anywhere, in fact, not only is it not going any, anywhere, but we can corner a different part of the market by being really, really real and vocal. I think it's kind of a combination of all of that. Mm, amazing. Um, you know, you've been so generous with your time. I appreciate it. The book, Hoot Muses, I cannot recommend it highly enough. Uh, all ages, honestly. I mean, uh, 11 to 111, I think, would be really into this. Uh, you know, something we ask every guest, Kate, and I, I, so I really have to end with this, is about your own muses in doing this book, your musical muses, if you will. Uh, what music were you listening to in the process of putting this book together? Oh, Wow. Um, I can't listen to music when I write, um, but I would say I listen to a lot of like really powerful women. I kind of, for the first time, discovered Brandi Carlisle, which we won't even talk about the fact that it took me this long. Another sort of like internalized homophobia situation happening. Um, <laughs> King Princess, Brandi Carlisle, like that was Halsey. Those are sort of like the, the, like during this time period who I was listening to. 
Mm. Uh, Brandy Carlisle, big in this house. Yeah. Uh, even though every time it goes on, I make a go-go's joke because <laughs> I can't help myself. Um, but, yo, thank you so much, Kate. Really appreciate it. I want everybody to read this book. Uh, thanks for making the time. Awesome. Thanks, Dave. All right, be well. We'll be right back after a short word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. We'll be back right after this, but first, a quick word from the sponsor of this podcast, The Nation Magazine. Okay, look, the need for independent journalism has never been more important, and The Nation brings it each and every week like they've been doing since 1865. I'm serious. This is what you gotta read. It's The Nation magazine. Go to thenation.com slash subscribe. And please never forget that when you support The Nation magazine, you are also supporting the continued existence of this podcast. So please subscribe. Go to www.thenation.com slash subscribe. And now, back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now I've got some choice words about the approach of the GOP towards trans athletes at this particular moment, which at the federal level is becoming more and more urgent that we be aware of what's going on. Okay, look, the GOP is pushing forward with a federal ban on trans people playing sports. On Wednesday, we will have the first hearings on the nauseatingly misnamed Protection of Women and Girls in Sports Act, introduced in February by an election denier from Florida named Greg Stubbe, who had followed Donald Trump to his inevitable destination inside the gates of hell. The bill seeks to amend Title IX, the 1972 famed federal civil rights law prohibiting sex-based discrimination, to recognize sex as that which is, quote, based solely on a person's reproductive biology and genetics at birth, end quote. This is the third time that Stubbe has attempted to push such legislation. It follows a spate of bills being forward at the state level, 18 since 2020, that have been signed into law and bar transgender athletes from competing. In addition, injunctions are right now blocking the enforcement of bans in Idaho, West Virginia, Indiana, and Utah. Chase Strangio, an ACLU attorney who's been fighting these bans around the country, said to me, the introduction of H.R. 734 is both a troubling reflection of where we are in the national landscape of attacks on trans people, particularly trans youth, and an ominous sign of what is to come. With so many threats to women's sports, what a sad commentary on our society that the action being taken in Congress is one that targets a subset of women and girls, those who are trans, and singles them out for discrimination. He went on to say, if we are to fight back against the many threats to bodily autonomy that we're seeing in state legislatures and in Congress, we need a meaningful and coordinated resistance to legislation like H.R. 734, and we need to challenge the notion that targeting and demonizing trans people protects anyone, end quote. The sports bill is also tragically supported by a small number of prominent women athletes who believe they are somehow protecting women's sports by allying with people who want to not only destroy Title IX, but have an agenda where they want to elect a misogynist and alleged rapist as president. Strange bedfellows indeed. One Olympic gold medalist who has supported trans bans and written upon it extensively has been swimmer Nancy Hogshead Makar and her organization champion women. Nancy Hogshead Makar has been a guest on this podcast in years past, not talking about this issue, but talking beautifully about women in sports. And this turn has been deeply, deeply disturbing. 
As Dr. Johanna Mellis, co-host of the End of Sports pod, tweeted to me, enraging how several cisgender, heterosexual, white women like Nancy Hogshead McCarr, who ostensibly vote Democrat and believe in abortion rights, are trans panickers and boosting their platform off such bigotry. End quote. The very forces that will at some point guarantee it, call for Title IX's overthrow, are in the driver's seat, and no one connected to women's athletics should give them one droplet of credibility. They should be aghast to see Title IX, some of the most important legislation for gender equality ever produced by this country, used as a cudgel to keep trans kids off the playing field. They should call that what it is, an obscenity. Nothing more, nothing less. Either Title IX is a shining example of inclusion, or it's not. To be used months after its 50th anniversary as a tool for bigots is the true perversion in this story. The anti-trans feminists of the sports world say that their support is only for this bill and that they aren't part of the larger movement of exclusion backed by street violence being whipped up against trans people. This is a cheesecloth thin cover for the reality of what this legislation represents. It's a not subtle way of saying that trans people have no place in public life, and it's quite obviously just the beginning. Not surprisingly, the same GOP rallying in utter lockstep behind this bill is also pushing Marjorie Taylor Greene's Protect Children's Innocent Act, which would make it a felony for doctors to provide gender-affirming health care to transgender minors. That is also going to be taken up this week. The GOP establishment is all in, and the bills are strongly supported by CPAC and its alleged closeted LGBTQ leader and accused sexual assaulter, Matt Schlapp. It was at CPAC over the weekend when a GOP yipping head called for the, quote, eradication of transgenderism, only to threaten, emphasis on threaten, lawsuits against people who correctly described his speech as violent and even genocidal. As a Jew, I can say if someone at CPAC, perhaps next year, called for the eradication of Judaism and then explained it by saying we just meant Judaism, not Jews, my mind would not exactly be put at ease. And not surprisingly, there has been no condemnation of these statements either by CPAC or anyone who claims to be pro-trans in every area except for sports. We need to be willing to openly discuss any issue that may invariably arise with transgender athletes and the sexual binary that defines sports in this country. It could be an exciting moment to even reimagine how we organize young people to play sports, especially at the youth level. Instead, the issue has become yet another cleaver by the right with minimal resistance from divided Democrats used to distract, divide, and demonize. They are clearly not stopping with sports and their project of eradication. Either we stand with our trans friends or we lose them. Either we stand with our trans friends or Title IX will at some point be next to go. Either we stand with our trans friends or we're next. We'll be back right after this with a quick word from Edge of Sports. Hey, everybody out there. This is Dave Zirin with the Edge of Sports podcast. People got to know that we put this podcast on with elbow grease and, and bubble gum on a weekly basis. And we're proud of the work that we do. We love it. But we can't do it without support from you, the listener. So please go to patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod and support the podcast. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. Any little bit you might give to support the podcast actually makes a huge difference to the work we're trying to do. That's patreon.com slash edgeofsportspod. We appreciate you. Make no mistake about it. And now... 
back to the Edge of Sports podcast. And now it's time for the Just Stand Up Award. Just stand up and just sit your ass down. The Just Stand Up Award this week goes to the New York Knicks. All right, it's not because of anything political, but because I have blue and orange in my blood. I was a Knicks fan at birth. People who listen to this podcast know that I favor the Wizards at this point because I've lived in D.C. so damn long. But the Knicks are my first love. I mean, I had players taped to my walls growing up. Wait a minute. Not the actual players. Pictures of players. But you get my point. And this is the first time the Knicks have played joyous basketball. Emphasis on the word joyous because those Pat Riley years, even though successful, were not joyous. This is the first time we've played joyous basketball since the days of uh, Bernard King. And I mean that. Bernard King. But today, the names are people like Julius Randle and Josh Hart. And of course, Jalen Brunson, who has taken this team at point guard and turned it into something exciting to watch. As of this podcast, they are 9-0 in their last nine games. 9-0 since bringing Josh Hart to the team. Josh Hart, a D.C. guy, so it all comes full circle. He's bringing every possible intangible to this team. Go on, Knicks. Do your thing. Just sit your ass down, Award. Sit your ass down. Sit your ass down. And oh my goodness, you got to sit, sit, sit in the dirt. Is Texas Tech men's basketball coach Mark Adams, who was suspended for what the school is calling, quote, an inappropriate, unacceptable, and racially insensitive comment. According to the school, Adams was encouraging a player to be more receptive to coaching and referenced Bible verses, this is a quote, about workers, teachers, parents, and slaves serving their masters. Oh my God. He's been suspended because, here's a shocker, the player was upset by this. And it's hard to think of anything that exposes the plantation economics of the NCAA more than a coach telling a player that he's got to be more like a slave. And by the way, if you ever get the chance, read The Slave Side of Sunday by a former NFL player named Anthony Pryor, uh, P-R-I-O-R. It is out of print, but you can find it, and it breaks down the plantation dynamics, frankly, like no academic ever has. Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Thank you so much to the producer of this podcast, David Tigabu. Thank you so much to Kate Fagan. I want to repeat that the book is called Hoop Muses, illustrated by Sophia Chang, curated by Simone Augustus, and it is just too good for words. Support this show if you can on Patreon, of course. Uh, For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace.
Black Ball is a new book by Teresa Runstetler that chronicles the tumultuous era of the NBA in the 1970s. Amid ongoing resistance to racial desegregation, a new generation of black players entered the league, including Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Spencer Haywood. Runstetler shows how these players transformed the game and laid the foundation for the global popularity and profitability of the modern NBA. Available now in hardcover, ebook, and audiobook from Bold Type Books. Visit www.boldtypebooks.org for more information.